One of the things that, that is really at the heart of our work is the importance of fathers in the life uh, of the faithful. That father's not there, you know, on a natural or a spiritual, uh, kind of a supernatural level. It's really challenging. I think even for us, as we seek to, to go about evangelizing, you know, if we've just had these bad relationships with men, or like we haven't had fathers who've cared at all, you know, about, about the faith, like, yeah, it's a lot harder um, to speak to them in terms that, that will make a difference. How do men hear their call more clearly and become more intentional fathers in the process? How can we fill the gap of fatherlessness so prevalent in our world? In this week's episode, co-founder and CEO of Exodus 90, James Baxter, shares his personal leap of faith and vulnerability, which led to a mission for men all over the world to fulfill their purpose in Christ. As men, you know, the majority of whom are called to be fathers, or everyone's called to be a father in one way or another, um, that is a huge responsibility because what you're doing is shaping someone's relationship with everything, you know, through your relationship with them. As part of the church, we can play a part in healing our society by becoming spiritually strong men forged through prayer and fraternity for the cause of the gospel. This is Living the Call. James Baxter, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, uh, for having me on the show, Deacon Charlie. It's a real privilege. It's it's a joy, and I'm looking forward to it. This is actually my first show of uh, 2022, so you have that uh, that rare you know distinction of a uh, you know episode to kick off an entire new year. So really appreciate you making the time um, to to be with us today. Hey, it's a gift. Yeah, I'm super excited for it, Deacon Charlie. It's going to be a great year, 2022. It I'm is feeling bullish on 2022. To be honest with you, uh, are you? Were, you? you were t- you were telling me about that earlier. I think you said uh, you used the word um, that you were going to be more outspoken, or outspoken was somewhere in the distinction in the description of what you said. I don't know if you said you would be, but somehow that factored in there. Was I right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that's uh, it's definitely a part of it. I uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm filled with hope for this year. Part of it's because I like the number two, and there's a it's lot a of twos year. in 2022. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, there's a lot to be excited about today. 20, 22's, uh, it's actually one of my boys' favorite numbers. He wore, he is a soccer player and he had 22 as a Jersey number. And for some reason, 22 is factored into like our lives in a variety of different ways. So I agree with you on that. <laughs> I also think, I also think there's like something hopeful about, you know, the start to every year, which is why I think, you know, people, make even in the regular world right the sort of non-catholic space people make new year's resolutions they they feel a sense of optimism and hope and they're looking out to the future and you know that's that's what this time is about it's a lot of people you know make determinations to do things you know lose weight and work out and do different things maybe start an asceticism program uh, (laughs) like exodus 90 but it's it's an important time yeah, for sure. No, a couple years back, actually, January 1 collided with day one of East, uh, Exodus 90 to end on Easter Sunday. Uh, oh, I think really? that was 20, 2018, I, I think. And uh, we definitely took full advantage of that. And there's no doubt some of that uh, that, that New Year's resolution spirit that uh, gets into our guys to, to start up Exodus wherever it lands in January. Uh, this year, it's coming up here in two weeks. So January 17th is, is a start. But uh, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Are, you, are you one to make New Year's resolutions? You know, I was going to ask you the same thing. I actually, I did make a couple couple interesting ones, I think. I don't know. I, I normally don't do them, and it's mostly because I end up, um, you know, kind of making them a bit too abstract, and so they're hard to enforce. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They tend to be pretty airy things. But I made a couple of concrete ones this year, and I feel pretty excited about them. One of them is about utilizing my mobile, de- mobile device only for utilities, because, you know, I, I, I'm sure you come across this too, right? It's like you've got people who are like, I'm going to get off of social media. I'm going to get off of this stuff. But I feel like, and I've tried some of that, just deleting apps. But it's, it's I kind of hit on this idea that it's, it's less about particular apps and it's more about behaviors that are attached to a screen, right? So I said, if I only use my mobile device for utilities, and that's like, you know, text or maps or whatever it may be, and not for entertainment, that's maybe a better way for me to manage it. And that that meant, by default, you had to eliminate some things from your mobile device, even if you ac- access them via your desktop. But So I made that resolution, if you will. And my hope is that I'll find there's a lot more time in the day. It's been the case so far, although we're, it's early days. So I made that one. And then the other one was, which is very going to be very hard for me to do, 
is I'm actually going to try to do um, things, you know, kind of begin and end projects linearly hmm. rather Tell than more about that. Well, like, for example, th- this is like a, a singular insight about, about me that I'll tell you in two seconds. So when I was a kid, I used to play with matchbox cars, right? You know, little matchbox cars. Oh, yeah. And I had like, whatever, a dozen of these things that I'd bring out at a time. And the way that I would play is I would bring, like, if we were going to race from one side of the room to the other, and this was me racing by myself if I was playing, uh, if I was playing alone, I would move the cars one at a time, like, you know, a little bit one and then go to the next one and move that one up a little bit. And they would all kind of travel together. In this very kind of like, um, you know, multitasking kind of way of playing where like every one of them moves up a little bit. My brother, on the other hand, would grab one and he'd go like the whole journey with the one. He'd be like, you know, go up and down and get to the other wall. And then he'd come back and he'd grab the other one and start doing that. So my whole life, I've been more the kind of like take the little cars two inches at a time and move them all at the same time. And what I'm trying to do now, and that applies to everything I you know, my life, it's like, I'll have like nine different books going. I'll have like 20 emails half written. It's just, that's just who I am. Right. And now what I'm going to try to do is actually, if I start something, finish it or decide I won't finish it before I move on to something else. So those are my two, uh, resolutions as it were so far this year. What about you? Hey, those are so thoughtful actually. And, uh, yeah, I'm struck by both. The the first one around uh, really trying to treat your technology use kind of within the frame of like a utility uh, resonates with me a lot. That's something I, I adopted a couple years back, actually. And so regularly, I, I look at my phone and kind of the state of my apps. And I ask myself, like, what do I use this for? Yeah. And if it doesn't have like an outcome, that's not just like wasting time or, you know, just be here as long as possible. I just remove it. And I do this pretty regularly, actually. And it, it actually, for me, has really worked and, and puts me back into a nice relationship with my, uh, with, you know, with how I use my phone, you know. And uh, actually, it's that very kind of frame that we've used to build our own application for Exodus uh, from scratch, which we, we launched an app in 2018. So uh, I can relate to that, uh, you know, a ton. Um, and then as far as the, the linear thing, that's, that's, that's pretty, very thoughtful. <laughs> yeah, I like that it's a lot. That, 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 that's who I am. Again, the second one I'm a little bit more worried about. You know, it's, it's interesting to me about the, um, the, the kind of applica- the governance of our kind of usage of technology and applications because it's directly at odds with the way that a lot of these applications are actually designed and, and built, right? It's, it's exactly with the, the counter effect being planned, which is drive more engagement, more time spent, make them stickier, make, make them more about like, you know, spending time with them. In particular, you know, applications, and I've commented on this before, but I'm just curious as to your thoughts, given the fact that you've built apps and I don't always talk to people who have. But when you think about, you know, some apps like, um, you know, TikTok is an example. And, you know, something like TikTok, which is just the most, it's like the slickest kind of, um, you know, user experience or user interface that maybe I've ever seen for a video-based application. And the way I described it when TikTok first came out a few years ago and it got really popular, I was like, you know, I spent 20 minutes on TikTok and then realized it was four and a half hours. (laughs) You know, it has this like time... Uh, I don't know if it's dilation or constriction effect, but um, but do you know what I mean? Like when you think about that, which is the fact that these things, which you just said, are objectively good to kind of draw ourselves back into the moment and maybe be a little bit better, uh, you know, with ourselves about focusing on things that are important. And you weigh that against the way that these things are built and designed to kind of go against that. Wh- where does that like? You know what I mean? Like where does that where does that leave us? as as consumers of media like what are the kind of things we got to watch out for yeah so the founder of signal um and i'm forgetting his name but a, a quote that he gave i think this might have even been on the joe rogan show or the mm-hmm. joe rogan experience uh, was just that bad business models drive bad outcomes mm. and I, i'm really not a big fan of you know platforms that are monetized through advertising yeah. Uh, we use them for work, you know, to, to, to reach more men than we otherwise would. Um, but personally, years ago, when I first went through Exodus, like five, five years ago, I just realized that, yeah, you know, if I'm going to a place in which I regularly get stuck, 
you know, I, I'd really prefer to have that time back, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. now with, with a wife, with children, you know, uh, the, the reality is there's, there does not seem to be enough time in the day for me to justify wasting any of it. Yeah. And so I just kind of chose back then to get off of it. And I think really what it comes down to is, is those business models. And um, it's not necessarily the case that you need to build, you know, technology platforms with bad business models. I think some are very good, um, you know, but that's, you know, a big thing there, you know, on like the social media front. I'm just not a big fan of the um, give me your time, you know, and we'll make money off of that kind of ethos. Sure. I think the, um, you know, deeper kind of kind of into that, it's just like, there's just so, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it matters what you measure and, and what you measure and what you consider to be to success shapes where you end up going as a company. And so for oh. us, you know, uh, we talk about this all the time as a team. Simplicity is like a core value on our, on our uh, application team. And we mean it in two ways. Number one, it has to be a simple experience, like a simple UI experience. But number two, it has to be simplifying, you know, for the men that, mm. um, you know, go through Exodus. You know, like does, does their experience with our application add to the pandemonium or does it actually, um, you know, accomplish, yeah. you know, the freeing outcomes that we're, we're chasing? One of the things that's interesting is, you know, a lot of the time people will just say, oh, technology is bad. You know, but actually, it's a lot more complicated than that, and and it's it's a lot more interesting than that too. And so, just as a as a data point, fifty um, percent of the guys that come through Exodus ninety every year report struggling with wasting time on their screens every day. Uh, Five zero fifty percent. Fifty percent. Yeah, because I was going to ask you where where that ranks relative to the other things that Exodus could ostensibly help you with, right? Like. Uh, your your kind of spiritual maturity, your physical fitness, your understanding of something like fasting, like where this kind of like, I just spend too much time on entertainment and devices ranked. Yeah, that so seems that's pretty the, high. That's the number Half. one. That's the number one struggle pre-Exodus. And by the end of, of Exodus 90, 6% of our guys report struggling with their screens every day. And so it just shatters through the program. So it's not like a you know, it's not a bullet. We don't consider Exodus mm-hmm. 90 or any of our, our programming to be magic bullets. It takes work, and it's mostly the, the work of, of the guys themselves. Um, you know, but that's just an example of like, hey, we, we don't consider success, you know, how much time you spend on our application. You know, in fact, we don't even measure it. Uh, and that's, that, that really kind of shapes, has really shaped our, our development ethos. And that's, that's precisely why I don't spend really any time on, on social media. So on a personal level, I know that you just said that the, that the number one um, kind of thing that's cited by people who take, who go through the program is this idea of, you know, kind of spending too much time on devices and then that consequently goes way down, which is great. But on a personal level, what do you think the biggest obstacle is to someone's kind of spiritual formation and development, you know, relative to the things that are out there that are landmines, right? So you've got your kind of uh, you know, all of the, the dimensions of better understanding and, 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 and developing of a prayer life, all of, the underst- all of the things around the fact that we're made of matter and spirit, and so therefore we have to take care of the temple, the Holy Spirit, so fitness and all that, all the stuff around fasting, which is completely undiscovered as far as I'm concerned. I definitely want to talk to you about that. Um, but what, what's like the biggest obstacle you think, personally, that the culture or people have irrespective of whether or not they claim that this might be the biggest one. Like, what do you think is the biggest thing? Yeah, I think the screen time is a symptom of a problem or trouble with silence. And, hmm. uh, you know, most people are just kind of afraid to, to be still. And so we kind of seek to fill those voids in our life with as much and as varied, you know, frenetic activity as possible. You know, whether that's music, podcasts, just internet, you know, social platforms, etc. And none of those things are really bad in and of themselves. It's just like this discomfort or discontent or agitation um, that I think a lot of people experience when they're just still. And I think that's what people mean, you know, like mm. when we hear all these statistics around anxiety, you know, I, I think that's what, what they're saying. It's just like, it's hard for me to, to be still. Um, and of course, like that is a, is the foundation of 
of the spiritual life. Reading's a part of it, for sure. Listening can be a part of it. Watching can be a part of it, sure. But I, w- I was just reading a little primer on, on prayer uh, from the Carmelites. Mm-hmm. And they talk about those things as sort of uh, primers, you know, to prayer. Like they set the stage for the prayer, that dialogue with God in which you share your heart with him and he molds you um, yeah. to happen, right? And so when, you know, if, the, if those are the conditions or the foundation, you know, or the first steps to prayer and we struggle to really make that step, you know, to, to the silence, to the dialogue, to the openness. Well, that's, that's really challenging, you know, and, and I think there's kind of two dimensions to this. I think there's the, you know, what does it limit? It means you're really not in touch with yourself very much. You know, you're not in touch with what's really going on internally. You know, I think if all of us were maybe a little more honest with ourselves, we're pretty complicated. We have parts of us in very different places. And we say one thing and we do and mean another, you know, yeah. regularly. And, and, and the truth is, just as body-soul composites, as men and women made in the image of God, um, we're not so unlike God, you know, kind of, kind of multiple persons in one, you know, and it takes time on a natural level. And my experience in therapy has really kind of helped me to solidify my belief in this. But just time every day to just sit with yourself, like, how am I doing? Like, what am I thinking about? What keeps coming up? You know, you know what, what concerns me? What am I excited about? You know, and then just giving yourself kind of a space to kind of work through that, integrate all of that. And I think that's kind of a first step that's then, okay, a dialogue with God, mm. <laughs> the saints, you know, the angels, um, you know, and, and it really kind of orients, you know, what's from you, what's, what's a, you know, the natural realm and what's of the supernatural, you know, because I think we can also really confuse those two realms, you know, and mash them together inappropriately and, and much to our own kind of confusion, you know, and so... Um, to me, you know, when I look at the culture today and, and kind of how we can struggle and, and how we can devolve, and also if I'm just honest in my own life, it's like, yeah, I can just rush to fill that silent void with things, you know, and um, just as a book recommendation, uh, Cardinal Sarah's book on the power of silence, I think, speaks, speaks <laughs> volumes to this phenomenon. The great irony with that one, James, is that that is one of my eight simultaneously being read books, which is, this is the hypocrisy of being me, right? It's like, but, but, uh, no, I love the idea of, of silence. I have my own kind of personal philosophy on this, um, which of course, no doubt has been shaped by everything, everything else. I'm not claiming it's an original thought, but it's given me a lot of, um, a kind of deeper appreciation of what's, of silence is, you know, initially on my faith walk, I wasn't aware of silence at all. And then mostly because of my brother's monastic call. He's, he's, a, he's a, a Benedictine a okay, monk cool. and priest. Okay, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, um, you know, his monastic call uh, preceded, you know, my uh, call to the, di- to the diaconate. And I became much more aware of just monasticism, et cetera. And I got to the point where I'd go on retreats and some of them would be silent. And in that, I would like, oh, God's voice, you know, I can hear God talking to me in the silence. That was kind of like the next step of my evolution from total ignorance of silence to then that. Then to a point eventually, which I guess would be where I'm at now, and maybe there's a point even beyond this, where I actually feel like God's voice is the silence, right? Where And so therefore, we should long to be in silence because that is God's voice. And when, you know, all these like, images and thoughts and, and, uh, and, and feelings and emotions and insights and sentiment and all these things that happen in silence are the fruit of that conversation with God, right? And this is a long way of asking this question, but with that in the background, every generation feels like it's on the precipice of, of an abyss. And one of the things I dig the most about you is that you're very optimistic about everything. You're not like a dour guy on the culture, even though there's problems. Like you're, you're all about finding the, you know, kind of the, 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 the optimistic thing, uh, you know, future. But relative to silence, like we could say, oh, we're in a terrible place. Like everything's just like you said, like we're, everything's loud and crazy and chaotic and we can't get away from anything. And now you got the metaverse and Bitcoin and all these other things happening. It's going to make it even more so. But is that just us being kind of like the generation that says we're always at the precipice? Or is it legitimately harder now to be and find silence as it used to be? Do you, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I think there's some both and there. You know, because I, I was there's a little book that the University of Mary just put out, and I'm going to mess up the title. Something about apostolic mission. 
um, or kind of being, being, you know, kind of in this apostolic missionary time that we are in, kind of post-Christendom. And okay. in the introduction to the book, Monsignor Shea um, at the University of Mary talks about how, you know, the rhythm of life of someone who lived 100 years ago resembled much more that rhythm that our Lord probably had, you know, uh, growing up in Nazareth. And just with really kind of respecting the seasons, the rising and the falling of the sun, you know, these things that like, you know, we're pretty, you know, through, through our own advances, through electricity, you know, through, 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 through HVAC systems, you know, we, we kind of have overcome or kind of, kind of put a barrier between us and, and reality in a way. Yeah. And he, and he acknowledges that. And I, and I think there's some truth to that, you know? And so I, I guess the first thing would be, you know, is it harder to be silent today than in the past? I think the answer to that is probably yes. But when you look at saints throughout, you know, the ages, especially those that can be maybe a little melancholic and maybe struggle with some despair, they talk about like, oh my gosh, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're struggling from, you know, moral catastrophe in our time and, you know, the Lord is near and the Lord is always near, you know, but, but I guess when I first read that, like in the first couple hundred years, of the church, I was like, man, that's funny, because I would have said the same thing today, <laughs> right. you know, and here we are over a thousand years later, and I think that has, you know, in part shaped why it's like, hey, you know, here we are, you know, this is our time to figure out, and, you know, through God's providence and mercy um, and will, it's our time to be alive. And, and that is super, I think, should be super exciting for us. Of course. That, you know, uh, yeah, I don't look back and long for something that's no more, and I don't want to get ahead of where we need to be now. Um, not to say I don't want to learn from the past and reshape it. Like, that's, that's what I do every day. <laughs> but at, at the same time, it's just like to take for granted the time or to kind of live in a state of perpetual despair. I just, I don't, I don't really think that's, the disposition that the sons of God are called to, you know, I, I think that, that I can't imagine that's the will of the Holy Spirit that we live in that kind of uh, dourness. Nevertheless, it does tend to tend to happen, and and that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges. There's a ton of stuff that's out there that looks like a challenge to the very heart of what um, you know the Christian message um, is trying to advance, and you know there there are those, and I don't think that we should ignore them or pretend that they don't exist. Nevertheless, it's where are we putting the emphasis and the focus, and are we, are we an Easter people? Are we a people that you can see joy and, and life and love in? Because that ultimately is super attractive. Yeah, absolutely. I remember being in a, around a campfire with a mentor, a priest mentor of mine uh, in college, and we were kind of culminating a whole week's time in a leadership forum. And um, we had this conversation on the advancement in different biotechnologies, which, uh, to be honest with you, were way above my head. I, I don't have much of a, a science background, uh, to be honest with you. But at the very end of it, I mean, it was just like where things could go. We were kind of speculating this. And especially as it relates to just compromising on the dignity of the person. And, uh, you know, we're pretty aware of the ways in which that can happen. And I just remember it getting really dark. And, and in that darkness, this priest was like, hey, man, like this, this is our time. You know, this mm. is the time that God has given to us. And um, it's always really struck me because it was just like precisely in the darkness. It's like, yeah, this is where the light shows up. And whenever the, wherever the sin is, grace is abounding more. And, you know, Amen. and through hope, through that theological virtue, um, we, can, we can experience that. There's a a little bumper sticker thing that my wife has on her like monthly calendar. So we have this calendar in our kitchen and she puts all the, the events for the months, you know, upcoming on them. There's a little, little, little sticker that she stuck on there years and years ago. And it says, um, comparison is the thief of everything. And one of the things that came to mind for me as you were talking was the idea that we sometimes can, despite the fact that we've had incredible personages throughout history that we can look to and go, these amazing heroes of the faith, right? that we have a tendency of comparing ourselves to them and go like, oh, well, I can never be like St. Thomas Aquinas or St. Francis, or look at these guys. They were like amazing, and they're so pious and holy and whatever. My pastor the other day preached a homily. It totally surprised me. He was like, he's like, look, I'm not taking anything away from those guys because those guys are amazing. They're heroes. But look at the things that you have to contend with every day. 
Look at these very distractions that we're talking about. Look at the onslaught from a, you know, cultural standpoint. I mean, a lot of these guys were growing up in Christian countries, right, or or very Catholic ones. Look at all the slings and arrows and these different things that you're taking. And despite that, here you are at Mass. Despite that, here you are reading Scripture. Here you are believing. Like, give yourself a little bit of a boost, you know. And 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 it was it was so interesting to see that, or to hear that rather, because. I think this is our time, our moment, and we are, or can be, or at least should be, what God wants us to be, the saints of this time. And and we have these things to overcome, just as, you know, these previous great men and women did in their own time and place. Yeah, and that's so interesting when you look at this lives of the saints. It's, you know, the, you know, a full faith is there, you know, a full belief in our Lord Jesus Christ is there you know, a love for the church and obedience to the church is, is always there. But their lives are so different, and they so often take up the means and tools of the time and use them, like, to their own benefit, you know, for the advancement of the mission. And uh, Maximilian Colby, great example of this. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and go, to, go down the line. I mean, the Jesuits were masters of this, you know, uh, you know adopting you know, parts of, of, of culture so as to transform them into the truth of Christ. And, you know, it, it's important to study the lives of the saints. It's important to be inspired by them. Um, but if we look like cookie cutters or we look like the past, well, I don't think that's, that's quite it. You know, that's precisely what they weren't in their time. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think ultimately if we you know, and it's, it's not to sell the, the, the time we have short and its challenges short, just like your priest is talking about, the challenges that we're facing are unique and different, you know, and, and I think at the, really the foundation of what he's talking about there is the fact that we were once a Christian culture, and we lost that. You know, so many of the principles, you know, that were the fruits of the mission of the church that had become embedded into society are very much at play again. And unlike the past, where Christ is fulfilling the promises of the pagans, it's it's much more like a, you know, struggling through a divorce, you know, and trying to get you know the person that's lost to come back, and that's that's really hard. That's really challenging. And and so I don't want to like sell that sell that short. But I guess when I look at the saints, what I'm always surprised by is how unique they are, you know. And that inspires me to, you know, sometimes regularly I'm like, man, that. I'm a little weird, you know, but like that's that's got to be a part of it. It's got there's got to be some, you know, unique charisms that God's bringing about um, in us if we're really kind of living up to, you know, who He intended for us to be. And I think it's also an interesting, um, you know, segue potentially, but into the idea of how we were once or have had this kind of culture that advanced certain principles and some of those things have faded and what to do about it. Because, you know, we, we all heard about the new evangelization and the, the proper role of the laity and being more involved and a thousand different things, you know, specific to your mission, specific to what you're doing, which I think is really emblematic of the new evangelization, right? The laity taking steps and being very active in the advancing of the gospel. And I think what you're doing with Exodus is a, like, you know, super clear example of that. In fact, so much so that I feel like it's kind of busted the membrane between, like, you know, stuff that's very churchy and stuff that's sort of very out in the world, and you've been able to be a good balance of both, and I think it's really it's really unique um, and very, very interesting. And you know, the question that I have, or, you know, one of the the questions that I have is, you know, this to me seems like, and it goes to your vision, right? Is is Exodus 90 and very the focus on men's formation the first step in a series of things that are intended to help to, you know, return or somehow revert the country to its its sort of you know Christian uh, background, or is it is it one hundred percent just focused on this idea of you know forming men through these various you know various steps that you've that you've articulated in the program? Like, is there kind of a broader vision? Not that the not that just doing men's formation isn't enough; it's huge. But I'm just curious on like how you envision this over the long run. Yeah, so I, I would say 
there hasn't been this like master plan, you know, that I've been working from. And and so I don't want when I when I speak into a couple directions here, I don't want it to seem like, yeah. you know, for the last seven years, I've just been plotting my way to this point. You know, I, I've talked about my story with Exodus, you know, many times and, and many other places. But uh, in short, you know, I was just responding to to an invitation that was given to me, you know, to, to share this formation experience uh, with other men. And that really, ca- you know, it really captivated me to to really kind of in the time that we have to create a place for formation for the men that are open to it and want it for their lives in the world. Um, I went to the seminary at a really young age, and one of the things I was really inspired by was how the priests would regularly talk about how they thought laymen, you know, who had callings in the world should come in and experience this rhythm of prayer, this, this accountability, this fraternity for their callings in the world. And uh, so in some ways, I look at my work at Exodus as trying to, you know, something like that, trying to create a place of formation for for men everywhere that are open to it and that want it. Um, In terms of, you know, kind of a broader broader vision for it, um, one of the things that that is really at the heart of our work is the importance of fathers um, in the life uh, of the faithful. And what I mean by that is, you know, the research on this is, is really clear, too. You know, parents, their faith matters. And if they, the kids see it modeled, they're going to live it. But when you drill deeper into it, uh, and these are studies not only in the United States, but Europe as well that have solidified this. When the mom practices the faith and the dad does not, that kid has a 2%, 3% chance of practicing the faith. But when the dad's involved, almost regardless of the faithfulness of the mother, um, those children have a two-thirds to three-quarter chance of practicing the faith. Wow. And that study is embedded in my family. You know, my dad came from a family of a number of brothers and uh, one sister, um, and one other sister, actually, who unfortunately passed away at a young age. But, you know, the, two, the, the, the fathers that care, 100% of us care a lot. The, the fathers that are, you know, don't, don't, the kids don't care. None of them care. And, and, and what that speaks to me is that there's something in the faithfulness of a man and, and the tone he sets in his house that absolutely attracts, inspires, and that really, you know, shapes the children. And, um, you know, and so for, for, for me and, and, and our work at Exodus, you know, that, that's definitely a part of it. You know, I see the work that we're doing as by focusing on men, by focusing on future fathers and present fathers— um, the majority of our guys are, are married with kids, on average have about three kids. You know, what we're doing is building up the church of the future. Um, that, that's how I see it anyway. You know, the second part of this is, uh, and I think the likes of like Jordan Peterson is really kind of helping us to wake up to this, but this kind of call to, to personal responsibility of like kind of waking up, you know, to, 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 a, to a higher meaning, a higher calling that you know, we as Catholics believe is discerned through prayer and through that relationship, but is kind of starting to be appreciated even secularly as, you know, the call to responsibility and meaning. You know, it's just something that you can't outsource. Yeah. <laughs> like, at the, at the end of the day, only you can be Deacon Charlie, and only I can live up to who I'm called to be, you know, as James. And, and, and I think um, there's just something really kind of present moment, you know, in the work that we do at, at Exodus— because it's it's yeah con- concrete you know it's it's challenging it's it's demanding you know and you know it definitely leaves our guys with more meaningful more intentional lives than they had before uh, that's what they tell us anyway you know and so again this was not some like master plan 7 years ago it was me just responding to an invitation and then through working on it realizing well gosh these two things are essential today um you know and we need to step up and and do what we can um you know with the gift we've got to give it's a it's a phenomenal vision and like many others when you're starting any kind of business it's iterative right you kind of build one phase builds on the next and then you can kind of see more clearly as you walk forward um i couldn't i can't imagine a more sort of noble or important or urgent um mission particularly the one about fathers i read the other day i forget where it was but it was like a recent study that showed this kind of moment of inflection where now the U.S. I think leads, it may be all countries, but certainly all Western countries in, in percentage of fatherlessness. It's like we're the least 
we're the country with the least you know, fathers involved in the lives of their children or some statistic like that. I'll, I'll find it. And if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. And I'm thinking about, you know, so clearly the problem is clear, but how, how does something like what you're, what you're building and doing in this, in this concept, how can it be valuable to someone who didn't, you know, have or a, a strong, you know, kind of father figure, maybe not a positive experience with, the father figure that they did have or the father that they did have, or maybe like, you know, the statistic you cited came from a household that didn't have a, a, a father that was involved in the faith. And so consequently they, you know, wandered or maybe you're still wandering on their spiritual journey. Like how does it work for them? Yeah. I want to take a step back before I get to that. And you talked about kind of the, the fatherlessness crisis mm-hmm. that we have today. I, I mentioned the spiritual ramifications of that. But but there it's it's way more practical than that even I mean like you know uh, the effects of not having a father on your mental emotional psychological economic it, all of those things fall to fall apart you know and, and there's something so grounding you know about having a father present so uh, that research secularly is also extremely clear in terms of overcoming it I, I think the first thing you know is to 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 accept that. It's hard. It's really challenging. You know, like as men, you know, the majority of whom are called to be fathers or everyone's called to be a father in one way or another, um, that is a huge responsibility because what you're doing is shaping someone's relationship with everything, you know, through your relationship with them. And again, I I have young children now, so I used to talk about this stuff pre-kids, and now this is only even like... (laughs) you know, just coming to, to, into my daily life, just like the responsibility it is every day to love my son and to love my daughter and to set, you know, um, you know, be who I'm called to be for them. Um, so I guess the first thing is just to say, like, if that father's not there, you know, on a natural or a spiritual, uh, kind of a supernatural level, it's really challenging. I mean, like, the odds are working against you. And I think it's important to to understand that. And I think even for us, as we seek to to go about evangelizing, you know, if we've just had these bad relationships with men or like we haven't had fathers who've cared at all, you know, about about the faith, like, yeah, it's a lot harder um, to speak to them in terms that that will make a difference. So I think the first step is just to, to acknowledge that. I think I think from there, it's, you know, to remember that even if you don't have a father, like on the natural level, or even if you know, you've had maybe a bad relationship with with priests or, you know, people in the church, it's to remember that like at our core, like we are sons and we are daughters through our baptism. And whether or not our images or our symbols of, you know, the Father have lived up to their calling, we can still access Him. Absolutely. So, you know, I think it's both a, a call to, like, embrace, you know, that, that, that high calling, like as a man, as a father, you know, but it's also to just really encourage people to know that on the other side of reality is a father who loved you into existence, you know, and wherever those failures happened along the way, that was not his plan and that is not what he wanted, you know, uh, you know, and there's a sorrow in that, you know, and there's a relationship to build, you know, and to heal, um, you know, from there. I think at, at the same time, finding help, you know, it matters a lot. You know, is it, is there a therapist that can step in and, and become that, that image for you in a certain place? Is it, is it a priest? Is it a spiritual director? Um, is it a mentor? You know, I, uh, I'm really big on mentors. I, I, uh, when you start something, you, you, you will become painfully aware of how much you don't have figured out, you know? And so like, I don't know, I think in a lot of professional life, like you're a lawyer, you're supposed to know, know the law, you're a journalist, you're supposed to tell the truth, you know? All these things. When you're when you're founding something, you don't know anything. <laughs> that's actually that's my theme in knowing founders. And you're just just problem solving every day. You've never been trained for the situation, and you just have to figure it out. And as a result, I'm just really big on finding mentors, you know, and just having their experience, their expertise fill gaps for me, you know, even if it's just on a professional level or company level, um, you know. But finding mentors, you know, can can kind of help to. To fill that void in your in your ministry as a deacon, Deacon Charlie, what would you what would you add to that? Because I know you, I'm sure you have a ton to say. I think you know part of the reason that the father figure is such a powerful um, 
you know, powerful modality or whatever you want to call it is because it images, image as in verb, not noun, images the relationship that exists in alternity in, in the concept of the Trinity, right? The Father and the Son. And so having a natural father, a relationship with a natural father or a mentor or a spiritual director, it kind of in a way images that. And whether we know God or not, whether we're very advanced or not in our spiritual journey, nevertheless, our soul knows, right? And so that's why those relationships can be very powerful. And that's also why, you know, the enemy attacks them as much as he does and can deform them so radically because he knows he gets a ton of mileage out of it when he does, because it really has a deep, deep impact. I completely affirm the stats that you put out there already about the kind of economic and just practical impact that not having a dad in the family has. We work a lot with homeless um, and, uh, you know, kind of housing unstable families. 99% of them are headed by a, a, a mom with kids. Uh, and in most cases, they're fleeing or have had a tumultuous or some or abusive relationship with, you know, the father of the kids. And you know, our goal over the time of our accompaniment, even if in many cases these are not religious folks, but our entire journey is about, well, how can we help introduce these kids to their father in heaven if they're not going to have a father here on earth? Because we recognize that the absence of that leads to, you know, a tremendous amount of difficulty and a tremendous amount of potential obstacles and chaos that can ensue in the life of that child. It's just the reality. And that's not to minimize the maternal impact, which of course exists, but there's something just deeply, deeply um, challenging about an absent father that has, you know, a tremendous amount of implications just, you know, in the, in the lives of, uh, of kids. And so I think that in a culture like ours, which doesn't have the natural fathers around as much as, as, the, as it should, you know, I think it's right to say, hey, well, what are the other things that could be in their, in their stead, you know? Um, Last point, and I've mentioned this before, but God, for whatever reason, has wanted to give me a lot of the understanding of the different facets of fatherhood. So, you know, I'm an adoptive dad. I'm a sponsor dad. I'm a, you know, a foster father. I'm a, you know, a spiritual father, biological father, all these different fathers. I'm a grandfather. I'm a father-in-law, right? So all these different facets of fatherhood. And so, like, I've been able to experience exactly what you described, right? Um by virtue of like all of these different facets. And I do believe there's others, mentor, spiritual director, et cetera, et cetera, that we need to lean on more in our case because our culture doesn't have the wherewithal from a natural father standpoint as much as it should, as much as it did before, right? And 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 that trend sadly does not seem to be improving. So in the absence of that, I think we do need to look at more of these, you know, kind of other avenues to, you know, have fatherhood be made manifest in different ways than just you know, naturally birthing a child. That's so true. And I, I would just add to the point that you said, it's not in any way a disparagement or a neglect of, of the maternal element, you know, our need for moms. I look at my own family right now and what my wife is pulls off on a daily basis for our two young kids. And it's, it's not replaceable. I mean, no. I, I can't do that. You know, I can't even come close. And, you know, she, she's the lifeblood of our, of our whole family, you know. But I do think it's really important to be able to speak, and as truthfully as possible, just about the importance of, you know, of both relationships. And, you know, the research on this stuff is, is so clear, but it's, it's so often neglected. And, you know, I, when I think about our work with men, you know, what gives me great hope is that, you know, amidst this kind of shattering of fatherhood that, that we've experienced, it's going to make the fathers that really know their call and the meaning that they carry around, I think, even more intentional because they can't just rely on the village, if you will, to raise their kids anymore. And um, I think that's going to be dynamic for the life of the kids that have that experience you know, who, who have the influence of men like you, you know, and uh, it's so inspiring to hear, hear all the ways that you're, you're, you know, you're modeling father for, you know, the father for so many. So. Thanks be to God, brother. That's all. That's what I can say after any, any uh, compliment in that regard, because I certainly didn't plan it. And it's just, uh, it's just God's grace that, that he's given me. I want to, I want to talk, you know, kind of in our last segment here, a little bit about some of the challenges that exist um, with respect to, you know, getting not just this mission of Exodus 90, but other, um, 
you know, revitalizing, rejuvenating, um, you know, gospel forward initiatives that are out in the church. And there's one thing that you said to me in our kind of initial conversation that really struck me. And I thought of like, I got to bring this thing up because you said it so off the cuff and it was just, it was really, really insightful. And it was the idea that somehow when you're in the vineyard or doing things on behalf of the church in apostolate ministry or whatever, even as just as a regular lay person kind of trying to live your Christian life at work, that there's this concept that the cause of the kingdom, right, whatever that, however you envision that, the cause of advancing the gospel somehow in certain ways justifies a type of mediocrity. Like, and I know in the context when you said it, I kind of think I know what you were talking about, but I, I want you to expand on that because I actually think that's a really important thematic that we should address. Yeah. So when I was starting uh, the work at Exodus, I had a, a mentor going back to it, tell me that if I wanted to get this thing off the ground, uh, that I, I really should not look to kind of the old traditional models. Um, and so I, I wanted to go just kind of work out of a parish and kind of figure this out, influence a couple people <laughs> kind of a thing. And he, he really encouraged me to like, just go throw myself into the startup community. And I did that uh, in Indianapolis. I worked out of a little co-working community called called the Speakeasy. Uh, which is in Broad Ripple, North North Indy. Uh, for Broad knows, Ripple. Knows town. Bur- yep. bur- burritos as big as your head is all I remember from Broad Ripple. I don't know if it's still there, but they used to, that was the name of a joint that sold burritos back in the That's day. That's awesome. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't have any of those burritos. Were they good? <laughs> they were great. Yeah. My brother went to school at Butler. So, um, so oh, wow. I, yeah. yeah. So I, I spent a little bit of time on Broad Ripple. Apparently that was the place to be. Yeah. Well, my, my experience there shaped me a ton, you know, and I actually, I have a OSV talk that's coming out here in a couple months, and I, I share a little bit more about that story. But one of the things that I, I realized, uh, and with talking with other kind of mentors, was just how important data was, you know, and just really coming to understand, you know, the work you're doing, you know, and it's like if you, you know, there there are things that, you you know, what I, I said this earlier in the show, like, you know, what you measure matters. And so obviously all the secular data points don't matter, but, but impact absolutely does, you know, and there are some things you can't measure and that's fine. We entrust those to God, but there's a lot of stuff you can measure. And I think sometimes in the church, we're a little bit afraid to, to see the truth, you know, that might come, you know, from, from what we find. Mm. And so anyway, in our work at Exodus, uh, we've really kind of adopted, a you know, an accountability first mindset. You know, like we come to work every day, not just because, but because, you know, we have dreams that we're chasing and because, you know, we know that our task is is needed right now, you know, and we want to reach as many men as we can. And so all of our teams, our leadership team, our product team, our marketing team, the start of those meetings are five minutes just looking at, the, you know, the five to 15 most important numbers from the past week, you know, and, and just trying to, to, okay, what are we observing? What are we seeing? What's off? Why? That allows us to just get it, get ahead of things, you know, and, and to make the improvements that we need to make in real time. And again, this is not, you know, I, I was a seminarian for a long time. I studied philosophy and theology. I was not a business person. And so I think probably me in the past would say, well, okay, but like, that's not what matters the most. And, and honestly, the more I, I go, I, I realize actually like there's something limited by that perspective. And I think there's something actually not humble about that mm. perspective too. And uh, it's actually the case that like, when we're working on, you know, things in the church, the substance of which is the most important thing in the universe, uh, it's really important for us um, to, to be as excellent as we can, you know, and, and to, to learn what we need to learn from, from our environments, from what we see working in the world, and to apply what we can from what we see and learn, you know, to, to our task, you know, with the gospel. And I find actually that, you know, yeah, work here is, is, it's really meaningful because there's only seven of us. And if you don't do your job, no one is around to pick up the slack. Like everyone is counting on you every day. And the guys here love that burden. They love that responsibility. Um, That, you know, but, but, but that, that, and, but that creates the camaraderie too, you know, Mm. the excellence creates camaraderie. You know, I found this too, you know, in my early days, I played competitive golf. And like, if I just went and shot the bull every day and drank beer, that's fine. It just wouldn't have lent to, uh, you know, lent itself to lifelong friendships, you know, but the guys that we were, I was just grinding away with, like trying to play as well as we could, you know, trying to keep our head in the game with every shot, knowing that 
one shot can make the difference in the match. Like that competitiveness just led to such deep friendships that have lasted forever. And I'm finding that, you know, that kind of intensity, if you will, um, and honesty is just, just leads to a, to a way more fun work environment. And, and I think the last thing I just say about it is I'm not talking here about overworking. I'm not talking here about 80 hour work weeks. I'm not talking here about being on email all the time, at, at, you know, and not doing deep, meaningful work that really stretches your cognitive capabilities. You know, I'm not talking about like buying into all the secular nonsense of just distraction culture at work, which is rampant. Um, no, I'm talking about like deep, meaningful work that moves the needle uh, and that changes the lives of the people that you reach. And, and you're also I, yeah. t- you're also talking about setting objectives and having metrics and you know looking at things and challenging yourself, right? I mean, we don't we don't bat an eyelash when it's challenging yourself to do another ten push-ups or fifty pounds of whatever your preferred exercise is, or you know whatever the whatever the other kind of um, you know goal may be. But sometimes, and I've found it as well. In the you know in church world, we sometimes do find that person or 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 that resistance rather culturally to what that what an approach might reveal. You said that it's maybe fear for what may be found. I would say, in, and that may be true. I also think it's knowing we're going to find something, but that what we find will require change. Yeah, yeah. And when you have the like the from like a kind of a humble disposition, that's really exciting. You know, sometimes I find that people are like afraid they're doing something wrong or like, oh, maybe we could be doing this better. And but but it would have we require us to change. I mean, we are breaking and building again what we do here on a annual basis. (laughs) And that that becomes really fun. Like when you have that kind of iterative, I'm going to improve mindset. Sometimes people can like, oh, well, you know, seven years ago, you weren't doing this or no, you're talking a little bit different. And it's like, yeah, to live is to change. And Newman talks about you know, to change often is to be perfect, you know, like this kind of gotcha journalism or like gotcha fear of like, oh, well, I don't want to change is is not the humble, humble way. Like it is literally the definition of intelligence to upon receiving new information to change your mind. And when you have that kind of frame for things that keeps things alive and zesty and exciting and mm. new. Um, but if you're proud and you need to sound right all the time, you know, and you're afraid to change your mind, you know, as you go along, like, yeah, sorry, you're going to break in a, an environment like this. And, um, you know, so again, all these things I've said today, I'm probably going to learn a lot, pray over a lot. I'll probably change my mind about a lot of things. And, that's you know, awesome. years ago, I would have been really like, oh, well, that's inconsistent. You know, like you, you, you're off your principles. And it's like, no, nah, like reality is more complicated than that. And it's actually experience that teaches you wisdom. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like hashtag startup life is what you've described in, in the set from a secular standpoint, but there is a spiritual dimension to it as well. And that is that, you know, um, there, there are layers and this is iterative and God gives us, I mean, look at scripture, right? Jesus tells us there's so much I want to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. Right. So it's like, it's not like what he's giving you. He is the master of this. Of course. He is. He's the master of this. St. Paul says, milk before me. Right. I mean, it's like, this is the, the process of the spiritual life as well. And, and we often look askance at that. I remember the first time that I ever got caught wind of this insight was really young, was really early rather in my, in my corporate career. And we had this, uh, like sales trainer guy. Uh, really incredible a guy named Aaron White. This was like 30 years ago. I still remember the guy's name. He came and spoke to us one time. And, and one of the things that he said, he was like just full of insights. But one of the insights was in understanding the difference between 15 years of experience and one year repeated 15 times. And it was like, wow. Yeah, there is a difference between those two things. You know? Um, and he was making an allusion to this concept of, what you described as real intelligence, right? Understand, stopping doing something upon the, uh, you know, the entrance of new information and evidence that can lead you into this other direction, right? That is by definition, the entrepreneurial aspect, the, 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 the sort of the startup life, but it's also, there's a really interesting kind of spiritual dimension. Even the whole, even entrepreneurship itself has a kind of spiritual dimension to it, which I think is kind of cool. But, but yeah, we've got to be, it is vibrant. It is exciting. It is something that we should want, and we shouldn't be so suspicious about it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at your own contemplative experience, too, I mean, 
I've been, so I've been praying seriously for about 15 years, you know, so at the age of 15, got introduced to prayer and, you know, changed my life forever. And it's like, the things I pray about today are so different, you know, my communication with, with God is so different from where I was at at 15 or 20 or 25. And um, so like God models for this for us, if, if we pray, you know, he reveals new things to us, you know, so this isn't only in the scriptures, you know, kind of his whole pedagogy. Um, but it's true for us, like on the individual life of the soul. Mm. Um, yeah, and I just think there's so much to to learn from and and, and glean from, and I, and I think really takes the takes a lot of burden off, um, you know, and 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 just kind of leaves you in a humble place of accepting your limitations and um, that you got a lot to learn. Well, for the record, James, I am uh, very happy that you're out there learning and discovering all these things because I know that I and many other people are the beneficiaries of it. And uh, not just with Exodus, but with what I'm sure will come seven years from now, right, which will look very different than what uh, Exodus looks today. And I'm super, super hopeful and very grateful for what you have done and your team has built. And uh, I'm very optimistic about what, you know, what can come uh, in the future as a result of that kind of openness and that docility uh, to what God may be calling you to, because I think that there's lots more uh, still ahead. So count me as one of the guys on the sidelines <laughs> cheering you on for whatever comes next. Hey, Deacon, I so appreciate that. And I'd echo, I mean, you mentioned the team. We have some amazing men working with, with us right now. And um, I look at some of the strides we've made, even in the last 12 months, and it's not because, you know, I worked harder or, you know, whatever. It's because now we have new talent with new perspectives, new experience, you know, new energy. You know, I've been here for seven years now, you know, uh, and just having guys in year one and year two, like of their story with Exodus has just, it's just paying dividends for us. So I just want to give a shout out to the, to the team, you know, um, Absolutely. Daniel Doyle. Jacob, Mark, other Mark, Stephen. I mean, it's just a privilege to work with those guys. <laughs> other Mark, I love that. Maybe you'll, at some point you'll have many Marks. You have to like. We have two Marks on a team of seven. It does create some drama. <laughs> yeah, no question. I can, I can totally imagine it. So before we get to our final section of wait, what, James? I know um, the seventeenth obviously is a big day for you guys, but just in general, you know, tell folks how they can track your progress, see what you're up to, get in touch, that kind of thing, and what are important milestones that they should be aware of. Absolutely, yeah. So. As you mentioned, January 17th is really the, the focus for us. So every year, 90 days to Easter, tens of thousands of guys uh, take up Exodus 90 and, and journey through the book of Exodus and learn to pray and practice asceticism with, with a group of other men. So uh, shout out to and an invite to anyone listening to this that you know is up for a, for a new challenge this year. Uh, pray that you take it up if, if it's for you this year. Uh, so January 17th, everything we're doing right now is kind of oriented to that, to starting um, but you know, we're, we're, you know, check out our site, exodus90.com. I'm not actually on social, um, but I do have a, an email list I'm firing up, which you can, you can see on our website. Uh, and that's probably the best way to, to stay up to date with us and kind of the work that we're, we're doing. We've done a ton over the last year to kind of refresh and add a couple new features to, to our work with men. And, uh, it's really only just beginning. We're super excited to, to, and privileged to kind of do the work that we do, uh, and grateful that God's using us. Cool. We'll include all that info in the show notes. James, are you ready to play Wait What? I am. <laughs> all right. Very good. We'll see so how James, I do. Well, James, we'll start with a softball on the first question, as I am wont to do. So which of these is false about your beautiful little hometown of Zionsville, Indiana? Which is false about Zionsville? Is it A, Zionsville would have been called Marysville, except the namesake declined the honor. Is it B, controversial Indiana Pacers player Meta World Peace was born in Zionsville? Or is it C, Abraham Lincoln made a whistle-stop speech in Zionsville when traveling to his inauguration in 1861? Which of those is false about Zionsville? So the Lincoln stop is definitely true. There's a park called Lincoln Park there where I took some prom photos. Uh, I didn't know that about Marysville, but I, I know that Ron Artest was not born in Zionsville. 
Uh, so I'm going to go with that as false. And you would be correct. Like I said, a softball. It is, it is true, though. He has a sprawling estate, supposedly, in Zionsville. When he's often there, uh, Meta World Peace was actually born in Queens, New York. Apparently, when he was a pacer, he really fell in love with Indiana. Um, yeah. And uh, so he's got a place there. But no, you are correct. So you're batting a thousand. Good job, James. Good. All right. Yeah. Question number two. I also know, James, that you're an Indianapolis Colts fan. So this question, no doubt, will be a snap. No pun intended. All right, here we go. The Colts have had a number of famous Catholics, right? Linebacker Daniel Odongo, the current coach, actually, Frank Reich, who went to seminary himself. Uh, and most recently, a very visible Catholic quarterback, Philip Rivers, which, of course, you inherited from my hometown of L.A. But what many people don't know is that the Colts also have a Catholic chaplain, and this priest has at least three unusual characteristics for an American cleric. Name one of them. Uh, Of their current chaplain? Yes. Name an unusual characteristic for an American cleric of the chaplain for the Indianapolis Colts. What's unusual about him? He's got at least three things that are unusual for him as a Catholic okay. priest. Yeah. So gosh, his name is escaping me, which is terrible. Will you remind me of the name? Is it is it Father? Father Douglas Hunt. Doug. Okay. So <laughs> he was in we overlapped in Sorry. seminary for a little bit. Uh, actually at St. Mindred. So I I wasn't very close with him, but, um, you know, uh, and I think he was actually a deacon maybe my, my first year. So there's quite, quite a bit of a separation, but I know he is the, he's the chaplain of the Colts. And I know Ursay, the owner, I don't know if he's Catholic, but they've always had a Catholic chaplain from the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. I think that probably stems from his dad or something. Um, so uh, yeah, how about that? He went to St. Minard. We overlapped for a year. <laughs> I wish I'm, I knew him I'm, better, but... I'm, I'm going to accept that, even though it wasn't one of the three that I had. So it's Father Douglas Hunter. Um, and the three things that are unusual for American Catholic clerics is the fact that he's A, he's African-American, number one. It's a very low percentage relative to the population. Population in the U.S. is about 13% African-American, but in the priesthood, it's like less than 1%. Um, he's also a former cop. Uh, he he was a, 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 a and he's also a late vocation. He entered seminary at 31. So those those are the three that I had in mind. But I will take what you did, and I learned some stuff even about him uh, with your answer. So thank you very much. So he uh, right. he's a really mm-hmm. big man too. And he is. Like he's yeah, he, he's he could be like the nose ta- the nose tackle. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's like so if they're six, ever three, short on the D line. Maybe he'll step in there and fill some gaps. Yeah, it's literally the first thing that I thought about when I saw him. I was like, "Wow, they picked the right guy." Very cool. All right, so last question, James. There's always a time machine question, and here goes. You travel back to Egypt, 3,200 years ago, to the event that is the namesake of your company. The Israelites are beginning their exodus from Egypt. You know, of course, from biblical evidence, what is going to ensue, the ups and downs and the 40-year wandering and how God will speak to them in miraculous ways. You happen upon one of the caravans making their way out of the city and you decide to tag along. Now, instantly, you notice something among the people of the caravan that you know you're going to incorporate into the program of prayer, fasting, and asceticism that you've now built. What is that one thing you notice in the caravan at the beginning of the Exodus. All right. So I'm a little stumped. So is this a question about what we have incorporated from what they did or no. like in a future iteration of Exodus? Future Exodus iteration. 90, that is. There's a future iteration. This is something that just inspires you. You see it. You're like, I'm going to incorporate that, whatever that thing is. And you can't get this question wrong. So yeah. unless you don't answer. Yeah. So I've often like visualized just what it must have been like to be wandering in a desert and the studies around this are really interesting how like they just completely go in circles like regularly and like out and about places they've already been so i think maybe uh, from that like maybe we make guys like walk outside in circles and just like look aimlessly at the sky and wait for god to bless them or something like that oh nice yeah 
kind of like a uh, or or maybe like look out for the pillar of fire or something if we could get god to like do that for all our tens of thousands of guys that'd be cool <laughs> nice i like that like a pillar of fire nft or something built in <laughs> i like that very good awesome james in all seriousness uh i really appreciate you being on the show it's a real privilege to have you and you know my prayer is for god to keep uh bringing a lot of prosperity to the work that you're doing into your ministry into the team and their families and everybody that's involved in this great work um, because it's super, super important. And uh, it's, like I said, it's a, a privilege and an honor to have you on to talk a little bit about it with us today. Hey, Deacon Charlie, thank you. No, the opportunity to be on Living the Call has uh, been a delight, something I've been really looking forward to. I've really appreciated our time together in the past and really admire you and uh, the work that you're doing, especially for Latinos. And um, yeah, it, it, it's going to be even more important into the future. So thank you for, uh, for who you are and, and the gift you're giving to the church. Well, ditto, brother. And if you're listening to our voices, that means that it's time to subscribe. And please share this show, this episode in particular, with someone that you love, somebody that you want to draw closer to God, make the show grow. And then we'll be very fortunate to see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-USA.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.